Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Transcript Podcast. You've got me, Scott Krisloff. I'm editor of the Transcript, along with Eric Wakaya, who's our lead author. We sent out a new issue of the newsletter yesterday, and the macro section at least had a lot of quotes from Fed governors talking about their view of the data from January, which was a little bit hotter than expected, as everyone knows. They seem to be concerned by the persistent inflation, but they also seem to want to wait and see and check whether or not it's going to persist. And then they also mentioned that the next Fed meeting will be March 21st, 22nd. And so they'll have some extra data on inflation and employment before then, and they'll be watching that closely. So the next couple of weeks in terms of economic data, that's going to be pretty important probably for what the Fed ends up doing at their March meeting, be it 25 or 50 basis point hike. Eric, any thoughts? Now, I think it's the same pickings. Like you have in the sense of the next data is crucial. By then they'll have the next employment report. They'll also have the CPI release by 21st, 22nd. What actually surprised me is that for them, they think the incoming data does not show inflation to be moving down more than they expected. So this, uh, they seem to indicate that the data has been coming in, especially in, in, in February and in January, it was a bit disappointing for them because they want to be moving, inflation to be moving down faster than, than what is in the market currently. So I don't know, I don't know how much faster they want that to be. So from 6%, maybe they expect to be around 4%. I'm not sure, sure. But I think that's a key point that I picked, but also. Generally, though, across all companies, MasterCard, Visa, and America, American Express are also speaking about the consumer still spending as much as they, it's still strong as it was before. Nothing has changed in the past three months. In the past two months, I think, since they reported earnings. So I think that's also something to keep an eye on. Price pressure is not fully going away. That's some points that you picked up from the ISM survey also. So I think those are some of the key points that are floating around, especially in the macro section. Any other thing that you may have noticed yourself? Yeah, no, I think it's just that the consumer spending is still strong. I think also on the flip side of that, though, is that we're seeing more and more commentary that labor markets are slowing some. I don't think that they're really contracting at all. They're just not as hot as they were. And so thinking about that, and then also the retailers comps that we picked up in terms of, I think Target had like a 0.7% comp, Costco's at a 4% comp. Those are really important and interesting because those are inflation unadjusted numbers. And so having those down here on a year over year basis, that's suggesting that inflation is coming down, at least like the growth numbers, the nominal growth numbers of the economy are coming down and that would include inflation. So. Part of it could be also that they had strong comps in 2021, 2022. So they could be decelerating just because of the tougher comps they had before. So I think that could be a case, but it's also some pickings that you get, especially from the retailers here and there saying, ah, the low-end consumer is really pressured. The middle-income consumer is, is trading down, but the high-end consumer is still doing okay, so to speak. But it's the sense you get also from reading their earnings calls transcripts is that at least for some of the retailers, they're seeing the consumer reducing their spending for this coming year. So it's not just comps that are tougher, but also the actual consumer is actually making trading downs, making decisions to actually go for value so that they can be able to make more from their money. I think two things I wanted us to discuss. One is the, the section that we highlighted a lot this week on energy. I think that's something that to keep an eye on. China is coming back. It's bringing back a lot of demand. And that, of course, would impact the global oil demand. My key picking from that section was that global oil, I think 
the export of global oil is back to pre-pandemic levels. So I think that's a key point to keep track of. What is your key pickings, especially in the energy section? Yeah, I think in the energy section, it's really, there were several areas of physical scarcity in the global economy that are showing up. And that is lithium, copper, and fossil fuels, oil and gas. And these are obviously the first part of the supply chain are your raw materials. And so if there's scarcity in some of these raw materials where there is, which is driven by growing demand, that's going to filter its way through underlying basic inflation metrics over time as well. And so lithium demand is one that's really interesting with respect to EVs, which I think from the consumer side, there's a lot of demand for electric vehicles. I think one of those quotes talked about 50% of vehicles by 2030 should be EVs and their scarcity in terms of being able to like get the raw materials that go into those batteries. Same thing with copper. Copper has been a story that has been restricted supply for a long time and growing demand. And then just basic old fossil fuels. I think it's incredible that the amount of investment in the, in a year is down 50% this year from where it was in 2014. So that suggests that there's not going to be as much fossil fuel creation going forward. And there's still plenty of demand to your point for that. So all of this stuff feels on the inflationary end of the spectrum, put it that way. It does. So the second point I wanted us to, to discuss was what's happening around AI and all. So I think it's a key thing, a couple of references to 1990s, especially in terms of how it feels to be in this AI upcycle. I don't know. What's your takeaway from that section? Yeah, it continues to be the most interesting thing happening in the technology industry sector within the transcript. This is what we're picking up every week now. I think that people are really excited about AI and the prospects for AI. That quote from Zoom talking about this feeling like 1995 really struck me in that 95 was like the beginning of the dot-com boom. And this was like a multi-year massive investment in a growing emerging technology that was thematically changed the 90s and then obviously changed the world after that. So it was like the tip of the iceberg. And by that time in 1995, you should have dropped everything and started an internet company. And <laughs> if we really think that's where we are with respect to AI, then you should probably drop everything, go work in artificial intelligence or figure out how to leverage this technology. In 1995, if you weren't learning HTML, probably was a, was a poor career decision. In 2023, you should be learning how to interact with these semi-sentient beings. It's definitely for the takeover. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it does tell you also that we are in a bit of a hype cycle when it comes to AI. So I think there is a lot that it will not float, but there's also a lot that you definitely end up being useful in the long run. So I think it's all about also being careful in terms of where you're investing. So I think picking who are the winners, who are the losers, or at least being betting on such a large enough portfolio that you're able to make money in the end, whichever, whichever wins and whichever loses. That's the feeling I get. <laughs> no, that absolutely is right. I think it's the important flip side is that quote was super interesting in the analogy to 1995, not only in the potential of AI, but also the, where we are in this hype of AI, which is pretty extreme. In 95 or 99 was extreme hype relative to the internet, but the internet did end up delivering, right? Like it changed the world. It changed the face of the economy and economic value. So AI has definitely the potential to do that. And it's going to be a, could be many years before we really see the total impact of this 
whole new industry. So this week, some of the conferences are happening is a, is a Morgan Stanley TMT conference and the speakers include Microsoft, Microsoft and Google. It would be interesting to see what things, what at least they have in store for, especially for unlisted investors in regards to what progress they've made in AI. And the quote there from Google Cloud CEO, Thomas, trying to say that they have not really missed the boat. I think it's actually also a very good point to take note of. So I think there is this sense in which like everyone is thinking, uh, my, oh, Google has missed the boat and Microsoft is taking over and all. I don't think it's that fast in terms of taking over or micro of Google breaking down or not or missing the boat in that sense. I think there's still time to make up for it. And I think Google can actually end up being one formidable force to reckon with in the area of AI. So I think that's a key thing to keep to keep in mind in this AI era. Any yeah. picking? Yeah, I think if it is like the internet does evolve like a brand new sort of industry, the incumbents probably won't end up winning. But thinking back to the dot-com era, one thing that always sticks with me is that there were all of these dot-coms that were born during that time. But really, the one that was like the ringleader of the entire time of that entire phase of society was Amazon.com. And that was the whole thing of being the long-term winner at this. So I don't think it's not necessarily worth overthinking who's going to be the winner. Betting on people on companies that already appear to be the winners is a pretty good strategy and betting heavily on them. So obviously OpenAI, not a public company, that's something that is possible to invest directly in the NVIDIAs of the world, the Microsofts, the ones who have access to this. And then one entity that came up in the newsletter this week that hadn't before is Hugging Face, uh, yeah. partner, Amazon. That I actually wrote in the editor's notes this week that it feels like in that 90, 1990s analogy, OpenAI is the hugging face as Amazon is to eBay. That there's always room for a second competitor. That's a second new emerging competitor like Coke and Pepsi. But there's always the number one Coke and then there's the number two Pepsi. So there's always the number one OpenAI and then there's the number two hugging face. Had you imagined if OpenAI became public through an IPO this year? Multi-hundred billion dollar valuation. That would, be the, that would be the height of the hype, though. It would be crazy. Be be crazy. But it's a cap profit organization. It's not, it's not a for-profit organization. The traditional side. That's a challenge. But the other for-profit organizations that are out there could be useful to bet on. So I think we can end there for this week. Thank you so much for joining us once again on this transcript podcast. Follow us on Twitter, subscribe to the newsletter, and we'll deliver to you good quotes for burning schools every week. Bye for now. Thank you.